was never about me. And this was why I was prepared to walk away with nothing and not sign yeah. an NDA because it wasn't about me. It's about men telling women to shut up and about women not being safe, right? And so somebody has to speak. Hello and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the Project Manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the Director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And once again, I'm going to ask if you have a few minutes, and I mean, who doesn't have a few minutes during this time of pandemic and lockdown you've got nothing but time I'm guessing so <laughs> if you wouldn't mind if you enjoyed the show we'd love it if you could go over to iTunes and leave us a, a rating and maybe even a review it would really help bump us up the Apple podcast charts and help get our wonderful show in front of new listeners which would just be which wonderful. it is increasingly doing it's increasingly it spreading so please really help is. us to spread more widely Yes, please do. And then once again, at the end of this episode, you will hear the other news segment. And again, this week, we have the wonderful Randy Drusen as our guest other news correspondent. Again, Randy is a journalist. She often writes um, and does stories for CBC. She is also a former self-represented litigant and a member of our blog steering committee. So Randy has a great perspective on access to justice issues, and she will provide you with some really interesting news stories from the world of access to justice over the last few weeks. So today's podcast is one that I am particularly excited about putting out because I first heard about Heather Savigny, who was a professor of gender, media, and politics at De Montfort University in Leicester in the UK through social media and then through news stories. And I reached out to Heather and we started talking and became friends. And this basically is the story of what happened to her as a university professor. A student came to her describing sexual harassment by a faculty member. Yep, it's going to be one of those stories, I'm afraid. And this was harassment that Heather had also witnessed at a, at a Christmas party. And she offered the student support. She advised her to bring a complaint, but what happened basically turned not only the complainant's life upside down, the student, but also Heather's. The student brought forward the complaint against the professor and to begin with, it looked like the university was doing all the right things. They launched an investigation. He was suspended in the process. And Heather continued to give this student her emotional support, something I've done as a professor. Mm. And I really do feel is completely an appropriate part of our role as professors. This student had been very badly affected by the sexual harassment, but then was really even more affected by the university's response to her complaint. The person concerned who was investigated returned to the workplace. And as is so common in these matters, she was not told what the outcome was. But as far as she was concerned, he was back. Very sadly, shortly after she tried to take her own life. And I can tell listeners that she is now in a much better place, but this was a horrendous time for her. So Heather continued to offer support to this student, but 
started to experience incredible pushback, what can only really be described as bullying, um, by her head of department, her dean, for having supported this student. She was told, for example, that she should cut off all contact with the student. And this was right after the student's suicide attempt. And repeatedly, Heather was told, you mustn't talk to anyone about the sexual harassment allegations, repeatedly told this. And when she refused to cut off contact with the student, she was then told that she was behaving unprofessionally and that she was somehow going beyond her role in offering the student emotional support. And also she was subject to claims that she was trying to smear the reputation of the university. So as she will describe in our conversation, she was then investigated. And the result of that investigation, which was done through um, an organization known as ACAS, which stands for the Advisory Conciliation and Arbitration Service. It's commonly used to intervene in unionized environments, labor environments in the UK. So at the end of that ACAS process, a report was produced proposing that she should leave the university. So Heather felt that having been pushed back at all that time, having tried to do what she thought was right to support the student, she would leave the university. Although it has to be added, she was asked but refused on the way out to sign an NDA. So I'm going to play my conversation now with Heather, who goes into this in more detail, and you'll hear her describing in her own words what happened to her and to the student. And then Dana and I are going to do a little reflection afterwards. So good morning, Heather. Thank you so much for doing this today. Really appreciate that. And I want you, you've got a very important story to tell here. So I want you to get straight into it. Can you begin by describing how your student came forward to tell you what had happened to them and what they said had happened to them, what their complaint was? Thank you, Julie. I'm really flattered to be on this. And I've been so inspired by your story. I feel very honoured really taking part in this so thank you um but it was the night of a christmas party a staff christmas party and the first thing that happened was that following a meal um there was a disco and on the dance floor um this guy's got form and we all know what he's like Mm -hmm. and we saw him getting a bit handsy with Mm -hmm. the student Mm -hmm. and so we went and got the student away from him thinking that was it right and then the disco finished and we went to the pub. Right. And in the pub, I wasn't really aware of what was going on in the pub in terms of the student and this mm-hmm. guy. But all of a sudden, my friend shouted me, Heather, Heather, you've got to get her out of here. And mm-hmm. pinning the guy to the wall so that I could get her out. So I got her in a taxi and took her home. And on that taxi ride, she was having panic attacks. She was hysterical. It was just awful. And what did she say had happened? Well, he'd been asking her for sex, touching her um, inappropriately. And yeah, and she felt terrified, right? And so the next day, she got in touch with me and said, can I come and see you? I haven't slept all night, you know, it's just, and she'd been having panic attacks through the night and actually she ended up ringing me up. And because she was on a placement in the department, 
she had access to the dean of the faculty and so she decided to tell him because mm-hmm. I said to her you know you're going to have a couple of options you can report it which I would strongly encourage you to do and there's also a sexual violence unit on campus mm-hmm. um, so I would access them and so she decided to tell the dean right and he decided to launch an investigation right okay so there was a, an investigation so I mean at first glance the right thing to do there was an investigation was he suspended during yes. the investigation right and then I you have told me what the outcome of the investigation was which was as we you know so often colloquially call it <laughs> a slap on the wrist and he returns to the faculty again. And uh, I know that this had a, obviously, a very bad impact on the student whom he previously assaulted. Can you, can you tell us what happened next, Heather? Well, there was two things. So one was he came back to work and mm. we didn't know the outcome of the investigation, but we assumed because he was back at work that he'd been cleared. And I was called in by the dean and threatened with disciplinary action if I discussed the matter with anybody, including mm-hmm. the student, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then... Which, um, of course, is the classic approach. Nobody yeah. can talk to anybody about anything. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But I'd assumed that the thing about confidentiality was um, so that basically we weren't slandering him. You know what I mean? If, he, if he'd been cleared. And I didn't know until this summer, so 12 months later, that he'd been found guilty. And I only found that out in the Daily Mail article. Uh, So when it was in this, of course, is a constant problem. We see this all the time in Canada that people don't learn the outcome of the investigations and they're not given the outcomes. So the student is back in the faculty, he's back in the faculty, she's freaking out about this. The next thing that happened, you told me, was that she went to speak to the dean about what measures would be put in place to ensure her safety. Can you That's describe right. what happened, Heather? I, I appreciate this is, you know, your your account of what she's told you, but please, please go yeah, ahead with that. Exactly that. So that was the summer before mm. she was due to go into her final year that she went to see the dean. And I did not know what happened in that meeting until a month or two ago okay Um, and what she says happened in that meeting was that she asked if this guy's office was going to be moved and what they were going to do to protect her and the dean said can't move his office that was it there was no protection offered to her at all right and she also said that she felt threatened several times throughout the conversation and that the dean had said to her that she wasn't allowed to discuss this with anybody. And if she did, she would not be allowed to graduate from her degree. And I think that threat at the start of her final year terrified her. It's devastating. I know from our conversation before that the next thing that happened was that this student attempted suicide. That's right. Right. Yeah. And I understand from our conversations before that she has now recovered, but that that was a direct, obviously, consequence of her fear of the person who'd assaulted her coming back to the faculty and not feeling that she was protected. So I know this left you, Heather, as the faculty member to whom she had come originally, 
and were there with her in the hospital when she went to the hospital after her attempted suicide. This left you feeling that you were the only person who was really standing up for her. You were really isolated in this. And over the next few months, that got worse and worse. And you decided that you needed to leave De Montfort to negotiate an exit. Could you say a little bit about what led up to that and what happened in that negotiation? To be honest, it wasn't that I decided to leave. I sought um, union and legal advice. And I had lawyers uh, who wrote to the university telling the dean to stop bullying me, which was what he was doing. Because right. every time I met with him, he threatened to discipline me. And so then following the student suicide attempt, I was told to cut off all contact with her. And I know, I mean, this was the day after, and it was just before Christmas. So I said, look, if she contacts me again with another, in another suicide attempt, I will respond. Right. And I was threatened with disciplinary action for refusing to, basically refusing to follow a management instruction. So you uh, felt, Heather, I'm sure in that moment, that your responsibility as a faculty member to, to protect your student was primary, that nothing else could come before that. And you were being told not to do that effectively. Exactly, exactly. And you just think, I need to be, you know, how could I sleep at night if I just ignored her suicide attempt, right? You know, I mean, it's just... Or what know. had happened to her in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then they went through my emails and sort of came up with some... The university went yeah. through your email. Yeah. yeah. And came up with some kind of trumped up charges of things that I was supposed to have done and asked me if my intention in those emails... They were two internal emails both asking for support for students, different students to this one. Mm -hmm. um, but they asked me if my intention had been to bring the university into disrepute, which is gross misconduct for which I've been. <laughs> so my answer to that was, um, no, that was not my intention. <laughs> and anyway, then um, I went back to the lawyer, they sent another letter, and I was advised to submit to ACAS to basically, all I wanted was for the bullying to stop, right? And just be left alone to do my job. Mm -hmm. All the way through this process, I wanted to keep my job. Right. And then um, I was told to put in a grievance to make the ACAS thing work. And basically the investigation, and they got an external person to do the investigation, who they paid for. And the external investigation found what they paid it to find and exonerated the head of school and the dean for bullying me and recommended that I be disciplined for um, basically reinvestigated over the emails and disciplined for the um, refusing to obey management instruction for one better word, um, reference this discussion over her attempted suicide. Anyway, so then the university wrote to ACAS and said, given this report, it was in everyone's best interest if I left. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so all the way along, I maintained that I wanted to keep my job. I just wanted to be able to do my job and not be bullied. 
simple as, and continue to provide support for students. So you got to the point with this, Heather, where it just felt hopeless. It yes. was just getting worse, really. Yes. And so you did, in fact, negotiate to leave. I mean, you're a professor of gender studies. You've published widely. You're very well known for your work. But you felt that you simply couldn't stay there. Yeah. And I know that when you were discussing your exit and what that would look like, you were also asked to sign something that would keep everything secret. Can you yeah. say something about that? Yes, because I was absolutely determined there was no way I was going to keep this confidential, you know. You were asked to sign a non-disclosure agreement, yeah. correct? Yeah. 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 And I said, absolutely no way, because I don't want to see other women hurt and I don't right. want to see other women put at risk um, or other women in this position. And I was determined that once... I left, I was going to go to the papers and tell this story, you know, mm -hmm. make sure it didn't happen to anyone else. So, so can we talk a bit more about that? Because I know that that was something that was uppermost in your mind yeah, when, when you were leaving and that you maintained your stance, your, your very principled stance that you would not sign a non-disclosure agreement and eventually they had to give way and you left I mean, in, without yeah, one. Yeah, I mean, in the end, because... I decided to have the mindset, which was, I'd rather leave with nothing mm -hmm. in no settlement than sign an NDA. So you were prepared to leave with no monetary settlement rather than exactly. sign an NDA. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's that. extremely principled. And I think that they just didn't realize that. But in the end, you did get a settlement and you didn't sign an NDA. That's and right. You, and you left. So... Can, can we talk a little bit about the general culture here and the kind of systemic parts of this? You've told me uh, that despite being very successful, senior, widely published academic, you just don't want to work in universities any longer because of the culture that you've seen around raising these issues and mm -hmm. dealing um, with faculty sexual misconduct. So. We both know that this is a widespread problem, that De Montfort University in Leicester is not the only place where this is happening. Yeah. So what do universities need to do? They need to start listening to and believing women and not shunting it off, parking it. They need to have proper policies in place to deal with this. And, you know, the fact that he was found guilty and still keeps his job, is still teaching students, is just despicable. And I think having proper penalties in place for people who do this. Do you um, think somebody who did what he did should be removed from their position, yeah. despite being, you know, tenured or permanent or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. And I think there are very weak management structures as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what has become clear was that, you know, it felt like the dean was just, he made his decision, he wasn't going to back down. And there was no evidence or rationale to back up what he did. There was no policy. You know, he, I can't see how he was following procedure if he was saying to a student, yes, we found him guilty and no, I'm not going to do anything to protect you. 
there is a sort of mania uh, and we see it in Canadian universities too for confidentiality. Anytime there's ever any kind of issue around sexual misconduct by a faculty member, everybody is constantly told, I know this from my own experience, to yeah. stop talking about it, stop yeah. talking about it. And of course, you know, we know that there are privacy laws and we know that people are, you know, presumed innocent and fa until found guilty. But even after an investigation has found that somebody did commit sexual misconduct with students, as I have experienced and you experienced in this case, people are still being told not to talk about it. Exactly. I mean, where does this culture of shut up, stop talking come from? And what can we do about it? Where does it come from? I just think because it's never tackled, right? So, you know, this guy has got a reputation. He's known across the field mm. that he's in for doing this he's done this the famous thing. open secret i yeah. hear that word so often about these individuals yeah. yeah two other women that i know have reported their experiences with him with the same person yeah yeah but why then do we keep saying it's secret and we can't talk about yeah. it yeah but, uh, but to be honest i just think it's like white male power yeah. and privilege it's just this assumption of entitlement and I think the only way to change that is to get rid of these men who do it and, and for it to be made public, actually. Yeah. What would happen if this individual wanted to go to another university and apply exactly. for a job there? Would anything be told to that other university about what had happened to him? No. I mean, the only thing it would rely on is the discretion or indiscretion of someone informally. Like you. Yeah. or like me right exactly yeah. right 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 who then get it in the neck for telling the truth exactly that it was never about me and this was why i was with, prepared to walk away with nothing and not sign an NDA because it wasn't about me it's about men telling women to shut up and about women not being safe right and so somebody has to speak um and so it, it was not about me i mean i don't want anything more to do with DMU or, you know, academia being my friends. Um, but I do care about the students who go there. And if this happens to another woman, you know, feel at least I've done what I can. And I can't wait to read your book. And I'm going to use that as my inspiration to write my story. Well, so, I hope you do. You. I really do. Yeah. Thanks, Heather. Oh, it's been lovely. Thank you. So one of the, um, the things that you and Heather talked about fairly early in this conversation was the consequences, I guess, that were faced by the perpetrator who, who was found, or rather the student's allegations were found to be truthful, which of course she didn't know at first. But what really struck me, and as Heather said, he got a what she referred to as a slap on the wrist. And it struck me how much worse the consequences were after the fact for both the victim and for Heather, who was trying to stand up for mm. her, mm. which just feels completely awful and and skewed that, you know, in this in this matter where the student was vindicated and their own investigation found that that this person had done what yeah. she said he did to her right 
he experienced very little in the way of consequences. She, yep. as Heather says at the end, like he's still teaching he still has, this. He's still teaching. Yep. Yep. The people who really, really, really suffered and faced punishment and consequences were his victim and Heather, which is right. so, I mean, it's just, it's horrifying. Well, I mean, it just feels completely upside down, obviously. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, you know, I know how common yeah. this is. And of course, this is also the reason that despite the fact that universities now have generally more process in place to do this type of investigation and at least to kind of formally register complaints, mm. they continue, unfortunately, to perpetuate this power imbalance that we see mm -hmm. throughout. I mean, the whole reason that professors sexually harass students is, of course, because they're in a power relationship mm -hmm. over them. And unfortunately, that power is occasionally abused in this way. And, you know, even though the student went into a formal complaints process, and this is the same across Canada, even though this was the UK, these processes are very, very similar. The outcome of the investigation, which, as Heather explains, she didn't find out either until long after she'd left Leicester. Yeah. The outcome of the investigation is secret. Mm -hmm. So for someone who brings a complaint, not only do they have to suffer through the process of retelling their story, which is always traumatic, and um, unfortunately people aren't always well-trained to listen supportively to those stories, but once it was all done, she did not get any outcome that made her feel safer, quite the contrary, because this person is now back in the workplace. Yeah. And second of all, she wasn't even told what the outcome was. So, you know, absolute mania with secrecy yeah. and, and keeping everything, you know, hush, hush. I mean, Heather talked constantly about being told to shut up about it, shut up about it. I mean, that was a big part of why the university pushed back against her so much. They just don't want people talking about this. There is no transparency. And it just, it leads these institutions. And, you know, I don't, because this is just, as you said, like, this is just one example. Like, unfortunately, mm. this is so But common. it's classic. This, it's, cla it's a classic mm -hmm. example. And this is what they all do, what all these institutions do. And you write about it in your book and we see it in the news all the time. And it's talked about so much the way these institutions behave. And it always strikes me. And it, of course, struck me again in, in Heather's story, just the cruelty here. Mm. The, mm. These institutions are behaving so cruelly to these victims. Mm -hmm. And I don't understand whether they just don't see it or whether they are refusing to see it or what exactly is going right. on here. The, it's a question the, I ask myself over and over again. You know, I know. Yeah, is, this, yeah. is this intentional or is it yes. just ignorance? And I yes. think that a huge part of it from my understanding comes from that idea that um, women ought to take care mm. of themselves. You know, mm. she was at a party, he was sexually harassing her and there's somehow therefore responsibility on her to take care of herself and then subsequently there is this whole minimizing of what she went through I mean the idea that Heather was told the day after the suicide attempt when she'd had a call from the hospital from this young woman that she must break off contact with her or otherwise you know this would be unprofessional like it's inhuman yeah it's 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 diabolical. It's diabolical. And how, but how they don't I, see that it's inhuman is right. beyond 
but but I think you know it comes from a feeling that oh women make such a fuss about this stuff just suck it up and I know this isn't all men and I'm not by any means saying that and I'm not saying this is every professor in every university or any of that let's just be really really clear about this but there is a disturbing sort of normalcy to this story because I have heard similar stories over and over and over again many of us have and and I do think it partly comes from that idea of you know suck it up you're a student he's a professor he's more powerful just suck it up and I think you know and again it's also the the institution the institution feeling that their status and reputation are what matter above all and I think in some ways maybe that's how they justify to themselves or or blind themselves to what they are literally doing to people right right yeah Um, and I mean you know you saw this in my story of the Anglican church and it's exactly mm -hmm. the same kind of process there's far more concern with protecting the institution than protecting the victim and the fact that Heather was asked as she was leaving and as she explained she didn't want to be leaving um, but at the same time she didn't no longer seem to fit there any longer Mm -hmm. Um, she was asked to sign a non-disclosure agreement on the way out and she you know I'm very pleased to, to, mm. to hear that she said no on principle. Amazing. But, you know, it's just another example of trying to push everything under the carpet. Yeah. And I mean, it's just heartbreaking, that quote from her when she said, you know, all she wanted was to do her job, not be bullied yeah. and provide support to students. And as you said, like, how can you argue with that? Like, no. that's, you know, and then, you know, at the end here, you, you were talking about the, this, the culture of women being told to just shut up and stop talking about mm. it. And mm. you asked her, like, why? Why does this exist? Why do you think this is? And, and Heather's saying, like, I th- you know, it comes down to white male privilege and power. And it, it made me reflect again, that this kind of tired argument that we hear so often in cases of sexual assault or harassment, mm. where the, the, the woman, the victim is told, well, don't ruin this man's life. Right. If yeah. You, if you yeah. say this, if you make these accusations, yeah. It will ruin his life. And we see even, that. Even though they're true. <laughs> even though they're true. Exactly. Yeah. And we see, and, and people who know that they're true say that yes. to these victims. Yes. And we see that in, I think, in the Brock Turner case from a few mm-hmm. years ago. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. you know, was recently watching one of the, the documentaries about Larry Nasser, And that was what those victims were, were told. Yep. And I think, you know, it's so frustrating because apparently... It's this indication that in our society, the the well-being and security of a of a man matters more than the well-being and security of the women that he has victimized. Right, right. But that is effectively what saying that comes down to. Yes, that's right. And and along with the well-being of you know those who who have historically been most privileged, it's you know don't change the status quo. Mm-hmm. You know, and we're having this conversation at the end of what has it been now? A couple of weeks since Sarah Everard was abducted from South London, kidnapped, abducted by a police officer, and then murdered. And her body was found about five days later. And there have been, of course, escalating protests about that. And, you know, one of the things that that, that women are saying, and I think this applies, you know, to universities just as it does to the police and, for that matter, to the Anglican Church, is, you know, we don't want to be told or lectured to about how to keep ourselves safe. I mean, we've all been doing this 
since a very early age. We all carry all this responsibility for somehow not tempting a man to, you know, harass or, or attack us. Well, what about turning the spotlight on stopping the people who are doing the harassment and doing the assaulting of women? And it just feels like the balance is completely wrong here. But I think to change that status quo is going to take a lot of very loud, raised voices. And I am happy to be one of them. Hello, I'm Randy Drusen. I'm here with the latest installment of In Other News. On March 18th, the Canadian government announced its support for Educalwa, an organization that works for better access to justice in Quebec. The $100,000 in financial aid will go towards helping seniors and their loved ones understand their rights in the event of abuse or neglect, especially in cases that involve fraud, health problems, incapacity or death. The Montreal-based organization will work with community groups to better understand the needs of seniors and will improve its tools to deal with their concerns. That includes a legal information workshop, a practical guide for caregivers, webinars and video capsules. Seniors will benefit from support to help them understand their rights, obtain legal protection and access to relevant legal information. In Ontario, the provincial government has announced a new multi-year plan to speed up access to the justice system. The initiative, called Justice Accelerated, aims to build a more accessible, responsive and resilient justice system. It includes an investment of $28.5 million for a digital case management system to help reduce delays and backlogs at tribunals. The plan also includes moving more services online and expanding remote hearing technology to more courtrooms across the province. The province's Attorney General, Doug Downey, describes Justice Accelerated as, quote, the next chapter in the province's work to break down barriers in the justice system and to speed up access to services. He said the provincial government will continue to work to improve access to justice. The National Collaboration for Youth Mental Health has purchased the rights to the screenplay for The Vexatious Litigant. It's a satirical comedy about the life of a self-represented litigant who cannot afford a lawyer and who struggles to gain access to the justice system. The Ottawa-based organization says that every individual deserves access to the courts, regardless of race, gender, class, sexual orientation, and socioeconomic standing. It also believes the vexatious litigant section of the rules of civil procedure should be struck as a human rights infringement. Members see it as a tool used to exclude from the court system black, indigenous, and other people of color, as well as members of the LGBTQ2 community and impoverished people. That's it for the latest installment of In Other News.